Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. So there's a, a fable that was told by Aesop, and it's called The Lion's Share. And that's where we get the phrase, the lion's share, that we often use as we're chatting. And it goes like this. There were four animals. One of them was a lion, one was a fox, one was a wolf, and one was a jackal. And they decided that on their hunting trips, they were going to team up. So the four of them got together, and they'd come to this agreement. Whatever any of them caught when they were hunting, the four of them would share it. And so the wolf is out there, and he takes down a stag. And once he's taken down this stag, he calls all the others. He's like, look, we've got one. We've got this stag. Let's divvy it up. Let's all have our share. This is going to be great. Free buffet, everybody. Um, (coughs) Tom Basford style. So (laughs) the lion decides, well, I'm the biggest, so I'm going to be the one who sits at the head of the table. I'm going to be the one who gets the carving now. I'm going to put this into quarters. And he made a big point on his claws of counting, right? Lion, one. Fox, two. Wolf, three. Jackal, four. There's four of us, right? Four portions need to be made. And it's like, well, because I'm the one who divided it up, and because I'm the king, right? The lion is the king, so I get the first bit. So he took the first portion for himself, and he ate it. And then he's like, right, second bit, I think that should go to whichever of us is the strongest of the animals, which, by the way, that's also me. So he took the second portion and had that for himself. There's like number three, okay, we've done the king, we've done the strongest, maybe the bravest animal gets portion number three, also me. So the lion ate the third bit as well. Uh, And then there's only one little bit left, and he kind of looks at them all menacingly, and he says, right, any of you want to stake a claim on that one? No, I didn't think so. And he has that one as well. It's a story about power. It's a story that we can probably all relate to in our lives because all of us, I think, have been in situations like the rest of the animals where somebody is in a position where they can exert their will unfairly because they've got more power than we have. And so they get what they want and we might have to miss out. We've probably all been in situations like the lion, where we have more power than those around us, and then we have the choice, how do I use this? Do I exert my will, even if it means others don't get a fair share? We're going to speak about this tonight, we're going to speak about it next week, as well as part of our God Meant It For Good series that we've been working through towards the back end of Genesis, because we see two stories that are characterised by an imbalance of power And we see how the characters relate to them. So next week, we're dipping back into Joseph's narrative. We've seen how Joseph has been um, interacting with his brothers. He's one of 12. He was the favourite. And he had these dreams of the brothers bowing down to him. And in a totally like 17-year-old boy way, he's like, right, lads, I'm going to tell you how it's all going to go. You're all going to bow down to me. The brothers, you can understand why, didn't like this. But they went a bit far with their objections and they wanted to kill him. They ended up selling him into slavery. Next week, we're going to pick up what happened to him in slavery. But we got a little scene break here and we go to one of the brothers and that's Judah. He was the ringleader. He was the one whose idea it was to sell him as a slave. And we're going to see what happens to him today. So we're going to read Genesis 38 And what I'm going to do, I'm going to read it in little bits. We'll talk about what's going on to make sure we all understand it as we go. And then we're going to reflect on two of the characters. So Judah 
and then a character called Tamar, who we'll be introduced to, and we'll see how it applies to us. I do need to give a little bit of a warning first. This is one of those weird bits in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever done like Bible in a year, and you've come across some stories, and you're like, wait, what just happened? And is that really in the Bible? That's where we're going today. So, hey, it'll be fun. We'll, <coughs> we'll make what we make of it. Genesis 38. If you've got a Bible, open it up, or you can look behind me, and you'll see the verses. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. I'm going to stop there, right? Two verses in, I'm already having like red sirens going off in my head. Like, what? There are things here that should, if you're paying attention, make you a little bit uncomfortable. There are lots of things here. I've got four that make me uncomfortable. Here's number one. I'm looking at which characters are named in these verses and who's not named. And I'm a bit uneasy about it, right? We've got Judah. He's named. He's the main protagonist here. Fine, I can live with that. We've got Hera. This is Judah's best friend gets named. So guy called Judah, by the way, he's got a best friend called Hera. We also get a man called Shua named, who's Judah's father-in-law. And who don't we get a name for? Judah's wife. Something doesn't sit right here. Now, you might be thinking, well, yeah, Tom, it's an old book, isn't it? This is how they wrote in ancient times. They only named the men. Not true. I've read Genesis. I've read the whole book. And what I notice is that when couples are introduced, we get told both of their names. Maybe you've heard of Adam and Eve. Maybe you've heard of Abraham and Sarah. Maybe you've heard of Isaac and Rebecca. Maybe you've heard of Jacob and Rachel and Leah. Maybe you've heard of Joseph and Azanath. These people are named both members of the couple, not here. That should make us think, okay, why is it being told in a different way? The way the Bible tells the story is part of helping us to understand how we should read the story. And here, when we're seeing the woman in the story is not named, it's telling us this is going to be a story where the the women in the story are treated in an unfair way, in a dehumanised way. We should be ready for that. Second red flag that I see. He's going to Canaan. Now, if you've read much of the Old Testament, you'll know this is a bad thing to do because the Canaanite religion had this habit of making people walk away from God, get into all sorts of evil, immoral practices. That's what the Canaanite religion did to people. So there were these warnings. Don't go to Canaan. Definitely don't marry into the Canaanite religion. What does Judah do? Goes to Canaan. Marries into the Canaanite religion. Red flag number three. We've got a big echo of Genesis chapter 3. You you know the story where Adam and Eve and there's a tree and God says, don't eat the fruit of that tree. What's the language that we see used of Eve? She saw the fruit and she took the fruit. Here, what we've seen of Judah, he saw, he took. So we're we're meant to bring that to mind. Oh, this might be like when it all went wrong. And then the fourth red flag, just aside from the fact that it links to Genesis 3, using language like saw and took is a pretty brutal way of speaking about a human being, isn't it? And we're meant to pick up all of that. We're meant to, you know, like uh, if Connor was here, he'd tell you this, right? If you're making a film, you'll put all sorts of like foreshadowing in the early bits of it that get you in the mood for what's to come. This is warning us that there's going to be some grim stuff coming up. So verse 3, she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. 
And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. So here you've got the eldest son gets married. We don't know a lot about what went on, but it sounds like he was a bad one. Did you pick that up? He was so wicked that God had to kill him. That's not a good blow. And think from Tamar's point of view, she was married to this guy. Uh, And so she'd have had to have uh, a pretty awful marriage, you would imagine. So that's bad. Also the fact, just let me paint a bit of the culture of the day. There wasn't government benefits. You didn't just get like helped out if you were in need. It was also a time that there wouldn't have been jobs that women could get. So for Tamar now, her husband has died, so her source of income from him has gone. No job to get, no benefits to get. She'd be utterly destitute. She's in a really bad situation. So they had this workaround. They had this system that was called leveret marriage. And the way leveret marriage would work is if the, the guy who died hadn't produced a son uh, to then take care of his mum in the old age, his next brother would produce an offspring like for his eldest brother. Now, it sounds weird. When I say this, it's like, it seems culturally distant, a little bit icky. We don't like hearing about it. <coughs> but in those days it was actually designed as a merciful thing. It was a compassionate thing. It wasn't meant to be, she's lost her husband, let's make things really weird. It was meant to be, she's lost her husband, but let's make sure that she's provided for for the rest of her life. That's what was behind it. So it would fall on brother number two, because Judas had these three sons, to to give an offspring to, um, to Tamar. So have that in mind as we go on. Verse eight, then Judas said to Onan... Go into your brother's wife, perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he'd waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. You remember I said this is one of those weird bits? (laughs) You see why, right? Um, Where were we? Yeah, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In this story, we see two different people sinning against Tamar. The first one is Onan. Now, I've got a little bit of sympathy for Onan being put in that situation. I get it. And if I was in his shoes, I think part of me would be thinking, yeah, I'm not sure I want to do this. Something about this feels a little uncomfortable. He could have just politely declined, though. He could have just said, you know what? Something about this situation, I'm I'm not there for it. But no, because he chose a different option. And his option was, well, I want to make sure I still get my sexual gratification, but I'm not going to give Tamar the son that she's due. He utterly exploited her. It's horrific what he did. And God's verdict is given. He was wicked in the sight of the Lord. He dies as well. Then Judah sinned against her. Now, given all that's happened, here's what you'd expect the next move to be. Judah should be thinking, oh my goodness, Tamar has really been through it. She's had a really hard time. As a family, we need to gather around her. We need to make sure she's provided for. All the nephews, nieces, grandkids, everyone needs to look out for Tamar and let's provide for her. Does he do that? No. He just wants shut of her. He wants her out of his house. He's like, look, just get lost. Go somewhere else. Go back to your dad. Find somewhere else to be. I'm not willing to take care of you. 
Maybe he thinks of her as like a, a black widow because two of his sons have already died. He's like, you know what? I'm not going to risk the third one anywhere near you. Now, at this point in the story, the third one was still a kid, so uh, he couldn't have stepped in and done uh, kind of the, ne- the next in line thing. But even when he grows up, Judah says, no, no, we're going to keep you well away from Tamar. I wonder if you've seen, though, that this is a justice issue. He's denying her what she's entitled to. He's used his power to condemn her to a life of destitution. So what does she do next? Verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she'd covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? They said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, well, let her keep the things as her own or we will be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. When I preach, I try and do some research. I try and look what other people have said about the passage. And you can get commentaries. These are like books that go through what the Bible's about. You can Google. You can see other sermons that are out. And so much of what I've seen on this passage has basically been trying to to judge the morality of Tamar's actions here and talk about like whether she was like right or wrong to what she did here. I am not remotely interested in doing that. That's not where I want to go. Because what I know is when our starting point is to critique the way those people who have been wronged and exploited try to fight for justice, we're coming at it all wrong. We've missed the whole point when we start there. Tamar was legally and morally, in the cultural context, entitled to the Leveret son of the union through Judah's line. And Judah had been denying her. Tamar went into this wanting justice. That was her heart's cry here. Now, Judah, on the other hand, I've got less time for Judah. Like, really, um, he's, a, he's a shady guy, isn't he? In fact, as I was researching this, I don't know if you know that old Arctic Monkey song that's just got the line, such a scummy man. That just kept coming to mind whenever I was reading about Judah. I've got some questions, right? Question number one is, how did she know where to go? 
Right, so he was going sheep shearing. He'd have had to do this every year. The place was about 50 miles from where he lived, so obviously, like, no cars or trains. It would have been a bit of a journey. So they tend to go and spend about a week there. He goes with his best friend. I'm getting, like, lads on tour vibes from it. <laughs> like, what happens in Timnah stays in Timnah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and near there, there was a big temple for Canaanite worship. And part of their worship system, prostitution was linked into it. So near the temple, there would be prostitutes. So she must have known, hey, look, if I go somewhere vaguely near the temple and put the veil on, well, Judah's going to be out there like, looking for a prostitute, isn't he? That's what he's going to be doing. He's obviously got a reputation. This is what he does. Also, right, his opening line was, come let me come into you. I mean, he has zero chill, right? <laughs> How about starting with that, hi, my name's Judah, if he wants to get to know her. But he doesn't. And how about this, right? He doesn't recognise her, not, not just at the start, but at any point in that whole encounter. He doesn't, like, twig on, hang on, aren't you a little bit familiar? Aren't you my daughter-in-law? It just hasn't even occurred to him. Now, maybe he's intoxicated, maybe he just doesn't care. But there are serious questions with Judah. And they end up like negotiating that he's going to send this go. He doesn't have a go on him, which I guess you wouldn't, would you, if you're just on a night out. But um, <laughs> she asks, well, can you leave a deposit then? Can you give me something to hold on to until you send the goat to me? And she asks for his signet, his cord and his staff. Translated today, it's basically, look, give me your phone, give me your driver's license, give me your credit card, and I'll hold on to that until you pay what you owe. So she holds on to all his stuff. He tries to send the thing, and she's not there. She's not by the roadside. And then verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, yeah, she's more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Sheila. In other words, yep, busted, it was me. Um, isn't that interesting, though, the way he responds when he finds out an allegation? He doesn't even know for sure, but he hears an allegation that she's been immoral, and he's like, burn her! Anyone who does that deserves to die. And it's like, it just hasn't even occurred to him what he's just been up to. He just hasn't got any level of self-reflection at all. He's a massive hypocrite. He's totally blind to it. There's a story that Jesus told about someone who's got like a speck in their eye and their friend comes along to them with a massive log on their face. Be like, there's a speck in your eye. We need to deal with that. But missing the bigger thing in their own life. That is Judah. Now, you might think, like, hearing a story told this way, like, how can I be sure that I've read this correctly? How can I be sure that reading it this way, focusing more on Judah's issues and Tamar's fight for justice, is that the right way to read it? Well, verse 26 tells us the helpful thing about the Bible is when it gives us the key to interpreting itself. In verse 26, Judah, once he's identified the stuff, says she is more righteous now, that's the verdict on the story. That tells us how we are supposed to read it. So that's what happened. Interesting story, eh? 
Let's think about those two characters. I've got a few things to say about Judah, a few more things to say about Judah, um, and a few things about Tamar as well. So Judah. I think the main thing with Judah is that he's leading his household based on power and on exploitation. It strikes me in this story just how big the power difference between the two characters is. So think about in, in their culture, in their world, what was true of Judah? Well, he was male. That would have put a big power dynamic in play. He was wealthy. He was socially connected. There were all these things going on for him that meant like the lion in that fable that I started with. Judah can act as he wants and get away with it. And there's very little that Tamar can do about it. There's little she can do to stop him. And Judah uses this power that he has in an exploitative way, as does his son, Onan. And situations like this happen way more often than we realise. In fact, I would say the majority of relationships that we have in our life have some level of power differential in them. It's rare that you're completely on the same level power-wise. And when you've got more power than another person, this is uh, from an article by Callahan Wayne, but really helpful. Two things are true when you've got a bit more power than the other person. One is that you have more choices available to you than they have available to them. And secondly, you have some degree of control over what their options are. So I started thinking about my life, and I started thinking about all the different web of relationships that I've got in my life, at present, in the past, and you know what I realised? I realised there's a whole bunch of relationships where I have more power than the other person. And there's a whole bunch of relationships where the other person has more power than me. Do you know which ones I tend to notice most easily? It's the ones where I have less power. It's always easy to notice, oh yeah, I'm on the receiving end here. So what harder to notice, oh actually, I have more power here. I need to be really thoughtful and careful what I do with it. And there's all sorts of dynamics that factor into this. Some are really obvious and positional. So I am a parent to my kids. That's an obvious power differential there, right? Um, in my work role, I have a level of seniority, so that puts some power differentials in play. In church, I have a leadership role. That puts power differentials in play. Also, some of them are societal. Just Not, not they should be like this, but certain things about me mean I'm received in a different way. The fact that I'm male, the fact that I'm white, the fact that I'm married. These things do make a difference to the way I'm seen. And so it, it creates these power dynamics. We shouldn't be blind to the fact that these things exist. So what do we do when we're in a situation where we've got more power than the other person? I think there are two options for us. One of them I'm going to call the Judah route, and we've seen it here. Now, spoiler alert, this is not the good one. This is not what we should be doing. But we see in this story, Judah leans into the power that he has so he can get what he wants, so he can benefit, so that his desires can be fulfilled, regardless of what that means for the other person. It's like treating uh, the other people in his life. We saw this with Joseph when he was selling him. We've seen it here with Tamar denying her justice. They're like pawns on a chessboard that he can push around. But we've got a second option, and that I'm going to call the Jesus route. Now, spoiler alert, this is the good one. <coughs> Jesus... He had all the power in the cosmos, didn't he? He was in the heavenly places. He's the creator, the Lord, the sovereign. What did he do with his power? He made himself nothing. That's what Philippians said. He took the place of a servant, submitting himself to death on a cross. We're told the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. 
And when there was a situation that someone needed to take the lowest place and give up their power to elevate others, that's what he did. Think about him washing the feet of his disciples. Well, think about a story a lot like this one with Tamar. Think about Judah's indignation. Yeah, burn her to death for the immorality. Well, Jesus had someone brought before him who'd been caught in adultery, and he had her life in his hands. And what did he say to her? Neither do I condemn you. You see, he used his power in a very, very different way. So that's a bit of thought on Judah. Let's think about Tamar as well. Now, what I notice about Tamar, this is the flip side of what we've just been talking about, but she isn't really in control of her circumstances here. For much of the story, what is happening to her isn't through her choice, it's just what is being done. She ends up married to a wicked man. That would have been arranged by Judah and her dad. They would have concocted that in that culture. She ends up sexually exploited by Onan and then denied justice by Judah. In the Old Testament, there are five groups of people who are mentioned frequently that particular compassion should be given to. They are widows, orphans, the poor, the sick, and foreigners. You'll find that again and again in the Old Testament. Now, Tamar wasn't just one of those five. She actually was three of the five, all true of her. She was a widow, she was poor, and she was a foreigner. And so the call on God's people is to respond to people like Tamar with compassion and mercy not with exploitation and judgment. So another thing I noticed about Tamar is she was brave and she was creative. So despite being a victim in the story, she's not passive, but she finds a way to fight for the justice that she's been denied. Her actions put her in harm's way and they show that she is a brave and creative person. Now, Our context isn't her context. So what I'm not saying is let's imitate her precise actions. It wouldn't translate culturally. Let's imitate her heart, though. Let's imitate her willingness to fight for justice. That's a good thing to take from her. And I also notice that she's honoured, both in this passage here and in the rest of the Bible. When we tell this story, and people do tell this story in a way that shames Tamar, it's like they've not read it properly. It's like they've not read that verdict at the end, she is more righteous than I. But also it's like they've not understood the New Testament. Tamar is one of five women who's mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Could we have the the genealogy behind me? This is from the start of Matthew. And usually the way they tell the family tree, they would just track the male line the whole way. Matthew decides to do something different, and he chooses to highlight and honour some of the women in the story as well. He picks out Tamar, he picks out Rahab, he picks out Ruth, he picks out Bathsheba, and he picks out Mary. And as well as being some of the key women in the story, actually, all of these women have a lot in common. In many cases, they're foreigners who've been brought in. In many cases, there's exploitation or brokenness of some kind in their stories. And Matthew's saying... These people matter. Tamar might have been incidental to Judah's story, the way it was told, setting up, not even naming the women at the start. But the way the Jesus story goes is very, very different. She's not incidental to the Jesus story. Jesus came for people like Tamar. And you know, if if anything about her story resonates with you, Jesus came for people like you. And Jesus came for people like Judah. And in a few weeks, we'll pick up Judah's story again. He's got a really cool redemption arc. God does some seriously good stuff in his life. But this is not the moment. This is the low end. But God's going to bring some redemption to him too. 
And hey, if you identify with Judah, Jesus came for people like you. There's redemption available there too. Scripture's given to point us to Jesus. Scripture's given, and this scripture is given to make us think, wow, isn't he amazing? The one who used his power not to exploit, but to redeem. The one who looks at Tamar and Judah and you and me and says, yes, I love you, I value you, I have compassion for you, I care for you. So that's what we do as we come to it. We let it channel into our worship and we turn it back to him in praise. 